Welcome back, everyone, to The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I am the director of the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And here with me, as always, is Andrew Schramm. Drum roll, please. Um, (laughs) Hey, good morning. Uh, My name is Andrew Schramm, and I'm a clinical psychologist and a faculty member in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery here at MCW. Super excited about our guest today. Thanks so much, Andrew. Today's episode is entitled Lethal Means, Firearm Suicide Prevention, and we have a really wonderful guest that I'm excited to introduce in just a second. Uh, Before we get started, just a couple of our usual reminders. Um, This podcast will be engaging in discussions around suicide. Um, So if you are not in a space today to listen to discussions around suicide or firearms, please hit pause, take a step away and come back. And just a reminder when you're finished listening to the episode today to do something good for yourself. We do have crisis resources available. Uh, This National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available at 800-273-8255. That is manned 24-7 by crisis counselors. The crisis text line is also available. You can text 741-741, text the word TALK to 741-741, and your text will be responded to 24-7. If you are in the state of Wisconsin, warm line information can be found at dhs.wisconsin.gov crisis. And if you are in the city of Milwaukee, you can reach the Milwaukee-specific warm line at 414-777-4729. So just a reminder to take care of yourself if you need it. So today's episode, as I mentioned, is entitled Lethal Means Firearm Suicide Prevention. Firearm suicide is obviously a big um, concern when we talk about suicide and suicide prevention across the country and really in the state of Wisconsin. And I am really excited that we have one of the key experts in the field of firearm injury with us today, Dr. Steve Hargarten. Dr. Hargarten has been a mentor of mine for the last seven, almost seven years, if that's it's kind of hard to believe, and really has been just a really foundational mentor in my thinking and work around injury prevention and suicide prevention in particular. So I am just absolutely thrilled that he agreed to jump on the podcast with us today. So welcome, Dr. Hargarten. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Andrew uh, to talk about such an important subject matter. And in terms of full disclosure, this is really my first really formal podcast. So thank you very much for my inaugural opportunity to to talk about this important issue. I find that kind of hard to believe, but I I figured you were a pro at this by (laughs) now. This is your your, your debut. Um, Just for our listeners, uh, Dr. Hargarten is a professor in emergency medicine um, and also uh, associate dean for global health and director of the global health pathway. Is also the past director of the Comprehensive Injury Center. He, in addition to his medical degree, has a master's in public health from John Hopkins. And so really, I think that intersection of his areas of expertise are perfect for today's discussion. Yeah, absolutely. If you could just talk a little bit about kind of your current role, Dr. Hargarten, as as Andrew mentioned, you're the past and founding director of the, was the Firearm Injury Research Center, then the Injury Research Center, and now the Comprehensive Injury Center. In your background um, in suicide prevention work and kind of talk about your current role as it relates to suicide prevention. Well, thank you. And I think uh, you've summarized our attempts to organize our thinking around major uh, issues that affect communities across Wisconsin, our nation, and beyond. And suicide is certainly one of them. And organizing our thinking with pulling in expertise, uh, such as the two of you and others, to help us better understand how we can decrease death by suicide that we can decrease attempts, and that we also increase our ability at our delivery of systems of care that uh, touch upon people in need uh, and that are in crisis. So mm-hmm. I think that my, my role has been convening thinkers. I love doing that. The diversity of thinkers is so important to achieve goals that we otherwise might not be thinking about. And I think that's what I think you have successfully organized, Sarah, around these, the series of podcasts 
and what happening, what's happening now with the Comprehensive Injury Center. That's great. So you've been working in this field for a long time, and I'm curious if you could just share with us what compelled you to work in injury and violence prevention. I know sometimes when I tell people what I do, they kind of glance at me sideways and, you know, ask me why I would do something like that. It's, it's pretty, it can be pretty heavy, but what kind of drives you and what compels you to do this work? Well, um, it literally turned my head. Uh, I was a practicing emergency physician for several years in the community, primarily at St. Mary's here in Milwaukee. And um, I helped establish a community health center. I helped to work in a refugee camp in Northern Thailand. And I began to think that I really enjoy elements of public health. And that's what drove me to advance to a, a public health degree. And Hopkins was one of the few that had an international element to their program. And I really wanted to have that as part of my training. And so I went to Baltimore with that in mind and to attain a master's in public health. And as my career, and I think many of us think about this, I literally, literally discovered an area that just struck me and I became passionate since then. And that was really injury prevention and control uh, led by Susan Baker and Stephen Terrett. Icons in this area, I had no idea they were there. <laughs> and I literally just fell in love with this whole field. And uh, with Susan Baker, I did a study on how Peace Corps volunteers die. My brother was in the Peace Corps. So it was a combination of personal. I saw a lot of injured patients coming to the emergency department. And then this professional area was beginning to unfold in the 70s and 80s. Uh, led by um, our iconic science father, which was uh, William Haddon. And so I, I consider myself classically trained in injury <laughs> prevention and control by these iconic thinkers. And I literally have been doing it ever since, both privately, I was with St. Luke's for a while, but when I joined the faculty of the medical college in 1989, it was literally at the beginning of another epidemic of gun violence. And that's where I got linked with gun violence was that epidemic in the early 90s that was so tragic, both in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, but also nationally, that really sealed my interest in continuing my work in firearm uh, injury prevention and control. Mm -hmm. I could go on for a longer time, but that was the cliff notes. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And Dr. Hargarten, I'm curious. Something that's remarkable to me about your career and kind of the intersection of your experience and interests is that you've seen the impact of firearm injury in the emergency setting and treated individual patients and have a really intimate sense of the problem in that sense. I'm wondering, like, does having the public health hat on help you deal with almost like seeing the individual impacts of violence, like knowing that you're preventing it at a structural level as well? I think it's a great question, uh, Andrew, and it is a personal one for me is that by treating uh, hundreds and hundreds of patients at the bedside with gunshot wounds, I'm compelled and interested in learning more about the disease that adversely affects the, my patients. But in order to better understand it, I need to leave the bedside, go upstream, and learn how do the bullets get released from the guns? What kind of guns are in circulation? How do people who are in a desperate state of despair and angst obtain this uh, product? How does the product get distributed? In the 80s, I was very much involved in car crash, uh, car crash injury prevention. I was very much involved in uh, helping to pass a seatbelt law for Wisconsin and felt that one among many, we were effective in doing that. And in, in seeing how public health affected motor vehicle crash injury prevention and control, many of us translated those um, ideas and science to firearm violence and how to prevent it and control it. And so, again, to your question, Andrew, I, I found that to be very gratifying to be able to do more than the immediate needs of a patient, which are very critical, very important, but there's more. And I think by interacting with more individuals who are thinking this way, perhaps we can make a better a difference in this area as well. Definitely. And like you said, moving upstream and influencing prevention through policy and other avenues. 
I'm profoundly uh, influenced by a parable, which I should be able to quote by now, but it's a parable of the drowning man or drowning person. And I'm at the riverbank pulling in a drowning person. And then I have to pull in another one and another one. And I'm wondering what the hell's going on upstream that's pushing all these people in. And that is the compelling piece for me personally is what the hell's going on upstream Mm -hmm. and being able to identify areas where we can make a difference so that there's fewer people that I need to, or emergency medicine and trauma surgery where you're embedded, Andrew, where there's fewer patients. That's a good thing mm-hmm. to, to, to build have fewer bridge, patients, right? Yeah. To build a bridge to mm-hmm. build a barrier. Yep. Barriers are coming up now for suicide prevention. Well, those work. Definitely. Right. And so real yeah. important. Thanks. That is, um, thanks for that extra question too, Andrew. I appreciate that. It's always interesting for me to hear kind of how things got started and you, you kind of mentioned you know, what you find rewarding in this work through being able to see some of these upstream prevention strategies and think about those and understand how those translate to the care of the injured patient. What is one thing that you wish people knew about suicide and suicide prevention based on your experience? Well, I think that some of the areas are, include that means matter, that access to lethal means does matter in terms of outcomes. I think that people need to or would really benefit from knowing that most people who have attempted uh, suicide go on to lead productive lives and that we need to get them through that uh, real important moment where they are despondent, they need intervention. And the more we can um, have those timely interventions available and effective interventions uh, delivered to our youth, to 50-year-olds who are despondent for health reasons or for a family issue, to me, that's where um, more and more people need to think about this in a way that destigmatizes it. It's part of the vicissitudes and vagaries of our emotional lives. They come up and down and really being able to make a difference in a timely fashion. And that's where means matter, because with a bullet being released from a gun, as an emergency physician, I can't intervene with that methodology. And I have intervened many times with other ways that people have attempted to affect their, their lives that I can really make a difference. And with firearms, literally, I need to go upstream to reduce access during that critical moment. And, and getting therapy, getting uh, intervention so that that person can get through that mm-hmm. and uh, lead a productive life. Uh, again, if their firearm is then reintroduced to their home, uh, that's fine, but they're through this critical period. Right. Yeah. I think that's so important in terms of suicide prevention. Uh, I think there's that, you know, that myth out there, that misunderstanding that if access to one lethal means is not available, that a person will will find another way. And research has really shown that that doesn't play out in, in most cases. And so I think that's a key piece of information that I'm glad that you brought up. So thank you. Can I nerd out real quick? Absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite research articles, like when it comes to this, is was published back in 1978. And they looked at about 40 years of data on individuals who had attempted suicide from the Golden Gate Bridge in California, but were restrained or stopped in some way. So there was an intervention and they followed them over those years to see, you know, who went on to actually die from suicide from a future attempt. And 90% of them, uh, and this is out of, I think like 600 people, 90% of them were still alive or had died from natural causes. And so to me, that study, which was back years ago, like that message, we still need to get out there that it's, it's not the case that this is something that we can't do anything about. Right. Yeah. Well, Thanks for be interesting that to, to get, resurrect that, Andrew. I'd love to see that uh, study uh, and look at the ages of, of those individuals. I mm. think it is so important that the younger age groups are the ones that have more of a transient element to this. But as the populations get older, I think suicide prevention becomes a little bit different, a little bit more nuanced about mm-hmm. 
more lengthy interventions that are needed to get them through these uh, very, very difficult periods. But it's great point of, of literally intervening, if you will, at such a critical moment. There's the Golden Gate Bridge. There's the Hone Bridge here in Milwaukee. And how we can reduce the access of lethal means, a bridge, uh, so that they can work through this, through this uh, terrible moment or uh, week and get them help and get them through it so that they can lead productive lives. As you said in the study, 90% go on to have productive lives. Yeah, thanks for bringing that forward, Andrew. 1978 was a great year. <laughs> Sarah Colbeck was born. So uh, the <laughs> earth was graced with your presence. <laughs> yeah, That's great. Exactly. Nicely done, Andrew. Very yeah. good. I Way like to it. go. You didn't even know. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move us along. And Dr. Hargarten, I yeah, I've heard you talk so many times about the framing of suicide as a biopsychosocial issue. And I think that framing has really changed. The way I think about suicide research, prevention research in particular, and, you know, has really, for me, helped bring suicide out of the realm of mental health. Certainly suicide has a mental health component, but there are other biological, psychological, and social components. So I'm wondering if you could briefly explain the biopsychosocial model and why it is so important to better understand suicide. Well, thank you for that. And you're uh, this has been a relative recent part of my evolution as a as a physician. Um, back in 1978, I wasn't thinking about the biopsychosocial model because I was trained in the biomedical model, mm. where I can take care of a diabetic who's in diabetic ketoacidosis. I can take care of a an acute heart attack. But when a patient came in who was despondent and tried to take or harm themselves, I quickly took care of the biological element of it. They were bleeding or they had an overdose and I managed them. But boy, I didn't have any much of a skill set to address the psychosocial elements that mm. brought them to this moment. And I think that as my, and by the way, the uh, Engel produced his seminal article, I think it was a year before 1978. I think it was 1977, it was where he, out, he outlined the, this model that says that basically was a result of, well, we've gone pretty far with the biomedical model. This is great. We're really taking good care of patients with that, with those biological needs that are right in front of us, but we really need to do a better job in tying this together with psychosocial elements. And that resonated with me uh, a lot. Uh, and I think it resonated with me because there are so many times that I felt, gee, there's something more there's something more I need to know or do, or at least if I understand it in a comprehensive way that I think this framework brings us, biopsychosocial elements, that my role is leading the team for the immediate biological issues, but we need an immediate behavioral psychological intervention, Andrew Schramm. We <laughs> need that, and we need a social service person mm -hmm. immediately because what brought them to that moment of action has those elements all tied together, whether it be a week or an hour of thinking or maybe months of preparation, but there's still those elements that we need to better understand and tie them together for comprehensive care, both to prevent or once it does happen to uh, assure that we have a better treatment plan that ties it all together. And I I think depends on the age, depends on the gender, depends on uh, racial, ethnic issues, and so forth. That some of the biological, psychosocial elements are they they get a different percentage of attention, and mm -hmm. rightly so. But they all need attention together in a unified way, and that's where that framework I think uh, resonates with many of us increasingly about being more comprehensive than simply the biomedical model, which has been hugely successful. And I'll stop with this, is that there's a conference called Beyond Flexner. Flexner was the person who organized the report that said medical schools need to be better at biomedical knowledge and training. It was hugely important, very successfully implemented. 
And now we need to really change that. I'm getting into curriculum for medical students, but I think it's really timely that we see these complex problems in that broad sense, whether it be suicide prevention, cancer prevention, uh, they're all needing that unified biopsychosocial model to help better inform strategies and better inform research questions that need to be answered, like the investigation, Sarah, that you're undertaking with farm-related suicides. There are so many important elements of biopsychosocial needs that are relatively unaddressed in a rural setting, and that makes it even more uh, important to understand it and tie it together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Hargarten, you mentioned earlier um, being involved with passing a seatbelt law in Wisconsin, and I'm wondering about policy around firearms and how there are unique challenges to implementing policies in in that area and culturally in terms of the meaning of firearms and how that is different from passing a seatbelt law. What do you think we can do to advance this policy that so clearly can save lives in this context with these added kind of challenges? Well, it's important. I think it's, uh, there's some, there's differences in that there's similarities. And I think that's important to recognize. So with a car and a gun, the final element that injures patients is the release of kinetic energy. And so if we want to control that kinetic energy release, modify it, prevent it from being released, that's a unifying area of cars and guns. If you crash a car without a seatbelt, we know that the injuries are far more severe. And so we wanted to protect the occupant. And it became more of a public discussion because driving is a public event. And we had car seats for kids. And that led to having us look at, well, listen, we can restrain people. We can ask you to restrain. The data suggests that the policy is strengthens that. And so a policy of saying you must wear the seatbelt, there's resistance to that, but eventually it, it became the law. And it's ubiquitous now across the United States. The challenge with, with firearms is that it's a personal possession. It's law kept in the home where many suicide attempts are made. And so the policy uh, challenges are there. And I think that demands research, research about how do we affect behaviors of people by uh, limiting their access to lethal means when they are so despondent. So that's what's emerging now in the context of the relative success of controlling motor vehicle crashes, we now have opportunities with some increased funding of research to better understand what's happening during these critical events. So somebody's despondent, they don't own guns, they go to a gun shop. And now we see that as a critical intervention point that the the firearm dealers become a partner in suicide prevention and Mm -hmm. further Um, understanding this person who doesn't seem to be interested in a particular gun, they just want a gun. And that would think you'd start to get red flags there. And that's where some of the research is is happening now and the policy issues uh, around behavior. And that's so hard to do, yet we need to build the evidence that it works and build the evidence that it's not going to somehow uh, reduce their ability to protect themselves in, in some way that they deem appropriate. So it's a very challenging area, Andrew, that is, I think, going to be increasingly uh, funded to better have us better understand this. I mean, think about the research in motor vehicle crashes. They were funding research in this area at $200 million a year. Yeah, Firearm research has only been recently funded now for a total of 50 million between NIH and CDC, and that still needs to be approved. Wow. Mm-hmm. So there's a disparity of research that helps us understand the complexities of this area and the complexities of an area that's got a lot of, if you will, political elements. And to me, HIV AIDS research, it was politically characterized, and I think it's a It was a political disease, if you will, for many years. And I think gun violence in general, uh, I consider a political disease. Absolutely. 
Super interesting in terms of like thinking this from, from a physics perspective and like a gun is a machine, uh, just like a car is, and we need to think about the physics of it. Sarah, sorry to mean to interrupt you. No, that's okay. And actually well, that, that feeds in really well to what I wanted to talk about next. And, and that involves some of the research, Dr. Hargarten, that you've done around the lethality of firearms, um, you know, broadly. And I think, you know, we've been talking about different means and mechanisms of injury and suicide. But, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, firearms are such a big factor um, and firearm you know, injury prevention is so important to suicide prevention overall. And Dr. Hargrant, I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit and why preventing firearm suicide is so important to suicide prevention overall. Sure. And you framed it well, Sarah, no question that uh, the highest case fatality uh, ratios of uh, suicide involve a firearm. So means matter. And so if you have access to a firearm with the bullets that they carry, and you've had access to lethal amounts of uh, opioid or other drug, or you have access to a knife, there's no question that the case fatality ratio, all things being equal, is going to be highest for a gun and the bullets they carry. The challenge with this, as I mentioned earlier, is I can intervene as an emergency physician. EMS can intervene in a timely way with other methods. Once a bullet's released, and this is the difference, Andrew, with managing the kinetic energy of a car crash. Um, once the energy is released in a car crash, I got an airbag, I got a seatbelt, I got other ways to manage that kinetic energy. Once a bullet's released, that energy release happens in less than a millisecond. I know that because we've looked at that. And so the biology of this disease is so uh, devastating that the interventions are quite limited in terms of the biology. It's pretty much over. They die at the scene. And so the challenge with firearms is preventing that person's ability to release the energy. And how do we do that? And so we do that by a variety of policies, but also a variety of technologies. Um, We do know that the younger age uh, groups that are involved in firearm-related suicide are using their parent's gun, somebody else's gun. Our preliminary research several years ago was 40% of the 20 to 24-year-olds used somebody else's gun, whereas the older populations, 75, they used their own gun. So there's one strategy involving younger people. How do we reduce their access to this product? And I think that's a major one to to be thinking about. And technology-wise, that's where we've had discussions about smart guns. That fact that that despotted 18-year-old grabs the gun, can't use it. Mm -hmm. So they grab amoxicillin and they ingest it and they're taken to the emergency department because they got sick. They regret their choice. And that's where we come in and address that moment with a biopsychosocial framework. So- It's so important to be strategizing about that product is design that a six-year-old can release that energy, a 15-year-old can release that energy. Why can't we make the product a little different that reduces and in fact prevents them from using it? And the gun companies have known that for years when they made the grip safety for their revolver and their grip safety for pistols. And so I think that's an element that is an important strategy to reduce firearm-related suicides. Another is the, the waiting period. There's been studies showing the waiting period does have some positive effect. More research is suggesting perhaps that's even the case. And I think that's where research comes in. How can you reduce this by strengthening uh, the ability of somebody to get the product when they're impulsively thinking about harming themselves? They go to a gun shop. And some we know of reports that they've died by suicide literally at the shooting range where the firearm dealer just sold the gun. So a lot of strategies in this uh, question, Sarah, that are important for us to be thinking about. And you said something really, I think, critical in this discussion. You talked about this disease. You know, when we've talked about suicide as being biopsychosocial in nature, 
but framing it as a as a disease i think is novel and new for a lot of people and i'm wondering if framing suicide as as a biopsychosocial disease specifically helps kind of diffuse some of the tension primarily the political tension that we have around firearm suicide prevention uh, it's interesting uh, in the way you brought it up, Sarah, and I and thought about this in the context of cancer. In the early 70s, 60s, there was there's actually a very interesting video of a doctor saying, I didn't tell my patient that they had cancer. <laughs> he didn't literally talk to the patient in a way that presents this disease uh, in a way that you would present other diseases like diabetes. And so I, I think that as we move along in this, in this path, that framing it in a way that says, you know, this is something that we need to better understand, this model helps us to frame it in a way that's an understandable framework, and it gets it out there as like, this, we need to do something about this, just like we do with cancer, just like we do with other diseases that adversely affect people, and years ago, oh my God, you got the C word. And that became a now diffuse and go, we've got now a lot of different ways of attacking cancer. And I think it's so important that it, the two of you have really started this podcast series with the S word is getting it out there, talking about it, talking about it in a way that's not judgmental, uh, diffusing past uh, taboos or whatever way people come to this. And there's many that we get it out there and discuss it like we would do any other uh, disease that adversely affects our families and our communities. Yeah, absolutely. I think that framing is so interesting. I, I wasn't aware that cancer was, you know, back in the 60s, a politicized uh, health issue. It seems so, you know, it's talked about so freely and openly. Um, and so I, I hope that, you know, we can get to that point with suicide as well. Yes, indeed. I think that uh, my major in, in college was history, and I always find this background studies like you brought up, Andrew, so interesting to think about this and the way people were thinking back in the 70s that, or 60s, however way you want to look at it, uh, that further informs our current efforts and further informs the way we want to uh, grow and do something about this. So um, I was astounded by this uh, video. I'd never seen it before, and it just was striking how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Change is possible. That's exciting. You know, and I wonder in 10 years or 20 years where we'll be at in terms of the conversations that we're having. Yes, I think it, it indeed. And I, uh, we've had these conversations before, uh, Sarah. Suicide is not one big lump of problems. It's like cancer. You don't talk about cancer. You're talking about cancers that okay. adversely affect people whether it be uh, leukemia or breast cancer or colon cancer, there are many different kinds of cancers. There are many different categories of suicides mm -hmm. in the young population, in a middle-aged population, and in the older populations that carry with them different prevention strategies that get emphasized, different uh, pathways of intervention that need to be understood with a despondent 65-year-old who's just lost uh, his wife of 40 years versus a 45-year-old who's been served the subpoena for a divorce and is now losing a financial uh, element of his work versus a 18-year-old who thinks this is the worst day of my life and I think I need to, to uh, uh, adversely affect it. So mm -hmm. better understanding that uh, helps us, again, with pointed research uh, efforts that better understand occupational-related uh, suicides. We have veterans, we have farmers versus youth and versus uh, other elements. So I think that's really important for us to understand, Andrew, that 10 years from now, we're going to be categorizing uh, these suicides so that we have a taxonomy of this problem, this disease that helps us, well, I'm going to work on this area. I'm going to do this. And I think that's really helpful and important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think so too. And as you're describing that, you know, I'm I'm reminded of some conversations we've had about needing to move beyond uh, looking at suicide as solely uh, a mental health issue. Like when, as you're describing some of those 
stressors that people deal with at different kind of developmental stages. You know, it's not just that we need to get people into treatment for depression, but that on a broader level, we need to consider prevention uh, outside of folks that are diagnosed with a mental health issue. Dr. Hargart, I'm, I'm curious um, if, if you can put on your emergency medicine hat and as a, an educator for years training future emergency medicine physicians, I'm wondering how providers in any you know, medical setting can contribute to firearm suicide prevention. And like when you talk with physicians in training about this topic, what suggestions might you have for, for them? Great question. And that too has evolved, uh, Andrew, particularly in our specialty of emergency medicine, which is really one of the relatively newest specialties in medicine that evolved in the 60s and 70s. And I was fortunate enough to begin my career as emergency medicine was beginning its evolution as a specialty where we wanted to finally tune our biomedical interventions to resuscitate patients in need to manage patients in critical need and get them to the next phase of care or to provide definitive treatment for their fracture, dislocation, or whatever. But as things have evolved, I think part of it is asking the key questions once the biology has been settled. And Sarah knows this story more so because I've said it several times is when I first came to be a member of the faculty, the resident dutifully reported the injuries of this woman to her face x-rays were negative, and we're about to discharge her. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, I don't want to know. And at that point, if you think about the biopsychosocial model, the biology was taken care of, bruises on her face, all taken care of, tidied up, she's on her way. But the psychosocial elements, she's anxious, she's depressed, she's angry, and the social work, uh, social care, uh, does she have a safe place to be? And that by asking the question, it's domestic violence, then there's a response. This is what we can do for you. At that point, there was no response. So now fast forward, you have uh, um, a despondent uh, teenager uh, in the emergency department. They just took a drug uh, uh, overdose, a mild one. Parents are there. Question do you have a gun in the home? And that question is one that is relatively hesitant to ask because I don't know what to do about it if there is a gun in the home. And now we need to develop that social care of the emergency department's response to this is going, well, this is what we recommend for you to do. It's asked in a non-judgmental way. And it's another element of our comprehensive care of this person who's just Uh, been biologically taken care of. There's some anxiety, there's uh, issues around behavioral health that we need uh, more Andrew Schrams in the emergency department to help us critically intervene in real time. Mm -hmm. Social care businesses, listen, we can help you uh, remove the guns from the homes or we can give you gun locks to make sure that it's secured. All those uh, other elements that help us with controlling firearm-related suicide. And I think Mm -hmm. this is evolving literally, Andrew, as a specialty element of what we do. And it's been decades of us recognizing, well, we're really good at the biology of this, but we're not so good at recognizing we need an acute care element of psychosocial care that we more deliberately need to do. And I'll stop with the fact that there is social emergency medicine now as part of emergency medicine. And that was literally four, five years ago. And I was involved in that conference where we developed that. That's all new. Wow. Um, 10, 20 years ago, social emergency medicine, what's that? And now it's literally being integrated more and more into the fabric of how we think at the bedside compared to what we were doing in a very crude way. It was meet them and street them. And I think that's a very uh, crude reflection of how we thought about uh, people and their time of need in the 70s and early 80s. Mm -hmm. It's so cool to 
get a sense of the arc, you know, the trajectory that we're on and kind of the context of how we got to this moment. So I so appreciate that. I'm thinking about like, you know, provider avoidance really stood out to me in that example. And so if I ask this question, then I'm going to get the data and then what do I do about it? And anxiety about, about that. So really trying to normalize this and like you said, make it so that providers feel that they have the training and the, the tools then to pr provide some kind of intervention if the answer is, yes, I have a firearm. Right. I, I think it's, it's such a way, uh, important way to frame it, Andrew, is when I've got a patient in need of, of a biomedical specialist, I know who to call mm -hmm. and I know who to call immediately and they respond. There's no, it's, it's so in my career, it's so interesting to see neurologists running because an acute uh, stroke now has a time-sensitive intervention that 30 years ago, I would tell a family, you have had a stroke. Mm. That's it. Yeah. And so I think that the evolution uh, of all of these are so important to consider and keep in the context of where we are at, what are those opportunities for us to better uh, intervene? And with domestic violence, there's a whole new... Um, classification of hospitals, you got to have a domestic violence or protocol in the emergency department. Well, why don't we start thinking about we're going to have, and I think Tara, you and I have talked about this briefly, is a codification of suicide prevent for a hospital. Where yep. is that? Where can you find it? Because a lot of people are in need and are in crisis coming to our campus. And how do we assure that we are tending to those needs? Well, now we have a, um, a department of psychology or something like that, Andrew, that codifies our recognition that this group of professionals is so important to be embedded in various parts of various sectors of care. In this case, at Freighter's main campus, so important to have Andrew Schrams running around helping patients in acute behavioral health needs that complement the biomedical needs that physicians have traditionally filled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That immediate availability. Yes. So I want to go back um, before we wrap up to something that you talked about just a little bit earlier, Dr. Hargart, and that's kind of the different kind of categories of suicidal behavior. And I think context of a person's life you know, similar to how we think about breast cancer or colon cancer or leukemia. One of the projects that you and I are working on with others at the VA in Wisconsin is around veteran suicide. We talk about, you know, firearm suicide prevention. We talk about things like safe storage of firearms. We talk about policies as far as prevention strategies go, more upstream prevention uh, for policy and, and individual level when we talk about safe storage. Veterans are you know, obviously, I think a unique group to consider in terms of suicide prevention. And I just want to ask, you know, kind of what your thoughts are in this area. We we talked last month or in our last episode with Charlie Vera around the data around suicide in Wisconsin. And we, and we mentioned that about half of uh, suicides in our state are firearm suicides, but that, that pr proportion is closer to 70% with veterans and farmers and other groups. So, from your perspective, what are some of the particular challenges and opportunities in this area? Boy, that's a great, uh, a great uh, question, uh, Sarah. And I think this podcast will go another two hours. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> I know, right? So, it's so everyone knows. It's so important uh, to to better understand the culture of farmers and the culture of veterans and how they view their social networking and their view of being in the community and their ruggedness to um, do it alone. And, and so I think it is a very important area for research. And it is so important to better understand how we can legitimately, how can we effectively intervene with a group that just wants to be left alone or mm -hmm. is insulated or isolated. And yet at their home, they have three handguns, four hunting rifles. And so they have lethal means there. And I, I think it's so important to us 
as health professionals to devise ways so we can better understand the culture, get and uh, recruit. And I think this is an important point that we've been doing with the veterans related uh, efforts is veterans with the lived experience. So mm-hmm. important as legitimate communicators with other veterans who are going through tough times. Um, farmers are going through tough times when they're 60, when they're 80, when they're ravaged by the physical ailments that deter them from being able to do what they've always wanted to do. Now they can't do it, or they're going to ask somebody else to do it. All that really becomes the, the necessary research area that, and it's required that we pull in behavioral health specialists. We pull in social services that have a, a new unique understanding of social services in rural areas psychological services that can be effectively delivered to farmers and other occupations that are have a higher risk and those kinds of interventions that are informed with veterans and with the research that helps us be more effective with those populations. So it's a very important area to continue to investigate, better understand it because we really need to get this under control. Here's a population of individuals who've helped this country and served in such challenging places. We need to better understand the fact that this has an effect on people and we need to be more proactive in getting them uh, reunited with their families and in their communities. A lot of work and for the two of you and others, it's a, it's going to be a lifetime of, of investigation to help us do better. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think to your point, the importance of bringing in voices of lived experience and living experience of not only individuals who share the same experiential background, whether it's another veteran or another farmer or another physician or another college student, you know, having that perspective, but also the perspective of somebody who has has had these experiences and understands what's helpful at that critical moment when when they're considering ending their life. So I appreciate that. Yeah, it's interesting, as you were saying that, Sarah, Sarah, in summary, we used to have grand rounds of patients who have signs and symptoms of a stroke. They, they've gone through a stroke, and now in, term, in front of medical students, we have them you know, do their reflexes and demonstrate their, their um, mm-hmm. uh, disability from a stroke. It would be so interesting to recruit and train those individuals with the lived experience to be in front of residents and students and talk about the key elements that help them get through this moment so that they've been able to live productive lives. But the medical students haven't seen somebody like that. Right. They don't see that. And I think that's something that for us to think about, Sarah, is to help students and residents understand this is a real opportunity for us to get them through this. And here's somebody who's talking about it in a real uh, uh, great way. I'm identifying a pattern of when you and I have these long conversations, it typically ends up with more ideas for more work, which is great. That's so exciting. Um, I think that's, that is the coolest idea. Um, And, you know, would be, you know, potentially really impactful for providers to Mm -hmm. see. So, Hey, Let's let's work mm-hmm. on it. Add it to the list, Sarah. <laughs> Add it to the yeah, list. And I love that because we know just in terms of human learning, right, that we can read the statistics and so on, but having a, a face, right, and hearing a story is so much more impactful. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, this has been a wonderful hour. Um, I really, again, just appreciate you, Dr. Hargarten, for your time and your expertise and all of your you know, wisdom and knowledge about this issue, it's its so important. Um, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us today. Andrew, do you have any parting thoughts before we wrap up today's episode? Yeah, just one thought I would share is, you know, we kind of frame the podcast as, you know, the S word in, in the sense that talking about suicide and suicide prevention can be uh, uncomfortable or isn't something that we do regularly. And that's kind of struck me today in our conversation, which I've, I've found incredibly informative, that we need to kind of get in the weeds here and talk about what, what this looks like in ways that maybe we're not accustomed to. So I just appreciate the candid discussion today. And Dr. Hargarten, thanks for 
thanks for being here and sharing your, your perspective on this. Well, my pleasure. I look to the two of you as the future of trying to get a handle on this problem and really making our communities healthier and safer and shedding light on this complex problem, this complex disease that continually need to better understand it. Uh, yes, I'm always looking for ways to make sure that Sarah has other things to do, <laughs> and um, that's great. Um, but there's there are so many different questions, and it is it's what's a nice, what's a positive thing about being in an academic environment is that you're around people like the two of you thinking about this and asking questions that are getting to an answer that oh boy we hadn't thought about that let's advance it and do something so I find this to be a, a great conversation and I thank you so much for inviting me to your distinctive podcast and my rookie. Uh, podcast uh, appearance. So thank you. Yes, you survived you. your, your, your inaugural uh, <laughs> podcast. Congrats. <laughs> well, you two are great, great interviews. Of, it, was, it was just great. Thank you. Good. I just want to mention to folks that are listening that there is really, really wonderful information out there about firearm suicide prevention specifically. I would direct folks to Harvard's Means Matter site. There's lots of really great information that's digestible that's easy to read, easy to understand about um, steps that folks can take on a daily basis um, to prevent firearm suicide. There's great um, research articles and data. So I would certainly suggest mentioning that. Um, you know, as we've talked about today, firearm suicide prevention is a concern in Wisconsin, specifically and across the country. And as Dr. Hargarten mentioned earlier in the episode, you know, the strategies we talked about today are important, but at the same time, we need to look upstream. We need to think about how we can work toward a society where fewer people are in such pain and agony that they resort to ending their life, whether or not a firearm is involved. Um, and then we also need to look upstream to some of the policy interventions that we talked about today that help to create safer environments for individuals who might be thinking about suicide. Our next episode, which will be coming up in April, is going to feature um, individuals who have lived experience of suicide, whether that is um, ex a lived experience of suicidal behavior or folks that have experienced uh, a loss by suicide. And these stories, again, will help provide really valuable information to us in this ongoing discussion. So stay tuned for that episode on stories of lived experience and suicide prevention. Just a reminder, um, if you need uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available at 800-273-8255. And please remember to take that moment of self-care today. Appreciate your time and uh, listening. And thank you, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. We'll I see you next time. I encourage month. you to take a moment to breathe and just notice, you know, what's going on in your body. It was a really uh, productive, but, you know, uh, intense conversation. So check in with yourselves. Yep. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Dr. Hargarden. Thank you.